Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Good morning, everybody. It is good to see all of you, and uh, welcome to those who are online as well. I'm so glad... uh, I don't know what that is. I just started, guys. Is this a commentary? Do you want me to? Well, amen, I guess. See, it, it was that. Um, so uh, you guys will remember, uh, at least some of you will remember, others of you will have heard about it. The, um, whoa. I'm guessing we are uh, having some technical difficulties. Or you're punking me. Could be either. By the way, it reminds me, Wally. So over the years, they've tried different things to mess around with me. And uh, one year, uh, I had played a couple jokes on some people, and then uh, they decided uh, that they would swap out uh, the, the communion cup for wine. And so uh, I uh, was leading communion, of course, because that's what the joke was. And so I was, we were kind of blessing the cup and drinking the wine, and, and I drank the cup, and I didn't think that it was wine. I thought that it was bad, that the grape juice had soured, and everyone in the room was about to have some. Uh, back then, we didn't have the individual servings. We had to, you know, pre-COVID, we had it all poured out from the same bottle of juice, and I was like the whole room is about to drink bad grape juice. Like, it's, it actually soured. This is terrible news. And then I saw them laughing in the sound booth. And I was like, that, that comes back. All right, we think we got this, maybe? All right, we'll take a shot at this. All right, so some of you will remember uh, the uh, What Will You Do for a Klondike Bar. Um, that was uh, this uh, series of, uh, car- of commercials that uh, were designed to help people uh, understand just how amazing a Klondike bar is. And so they would supposedly ask people to do some crazy things. And in these commercials, of course, they would get people to do crazy things um, because the Klondike bar was so compelling. And so uh, one of them, if you can, are you able to play that? What would you do for a Klondike bar? Would you make monkey sounds? Monkey sounds? Gee, I don't think so. Got the Klondike right here. Rich vanilla ice cream smothered in thick chocolate. No, that's a baboon. I think you drifted into Gorilla. That's got it. For that chocolate-coated ice cream loaded big and thick, no room for a stick. What would you do for a Klondike bar? You don't have to act like a monkey anymore. Okay, fine. Yeah. So that, by the way, some people, I've had young people say, I really wish I was like around in the 80s. They seem so cool. That was the 80s. A lot of damage that happened to society happened in the 80s because of stuff like that. That should have ended careers uh, from the actors who participated all the way straight up through. It's, and it's as if they never actually had a Klondike bar because they're not actually good. Am I wrong? Or is this like controversial still? Ooh. Oh, Okay. I did not realize that. I thought everybody knew they stunk. They were lousy. No? What kind of junk do you eat that you think Klondike bars are good? Okay, all right, quick show of hands. Who actually thinks Klondike bars are awesome? Show your hands, go ahead. 
Yep, some of you are embarrassed to put your hand up as you ought to be. And, and who thinks they're terrible? All right, thank you. At least three people agree with me that they're... Compared to what, Ben and Jerry's? Can we compare it to Ben and Jerry's? No? I mean, is there even... Anyway, I'm off track. I was going somewhere with this. So the thing is, right, so like you, you could reward people to do these things and often pretty silly things or crazy things by this incredible promise of a Klondike bar. But really all of life is like this. Everything that we do, every step that we take, every decision that we make is for a Klondike bar. It's for something that we perceive to be the value or the reward. Everything you do is for your ultimate pleasure or good, as best you understand it in the moment. And this is a really fascinating sort of philosophical idea. So every single step you take to the left or to the right, every single decision that you make, how you spend your resources, what you spend your, your time on, it is all designed because you believe it will bring, and you say, well, no, no, that's not actually true because I go to work every single day and I don't like it. But in fact, you go to work every single day because you don't like being unemployed and broke and you like to eat. And so you go to work. And so at that moment, you do that thing. And if you happen to love your job, you, that is awesome. I do. I know lots of people that actually do. It is still a thing. You can love your work. Uh, but, you, but even for those of you who don't, you know, why do we go and you go into a surgery? I don't want it. I didn't want to go into that surgery. Yeah, but you, you, you did want to because you wanted to do it more than, than dying from the disease. And so even the hard things in life, everything we do is in a sense for a Klondike bar or at least our version of a Klondike bar. And so you could ask this now about anything. What are you willing to do for fill in the blank? Fill in the blank. What are you willing to do to put your kids in the best school district? What kind of sacrifices were you willing to make? How much time away from your kids were you willing to sacrifice in order to accomplish that? What kind of financial restrictions? What kind of jobs were you willing to consider for that? What were you willing to do? What were you willing to do to get promoted to partner? What are you willing to do to get him or her to marry you? Let's say you've got your, your lustful gaze on someone in your office. What are you willing to do to sleep with them? What are you willing to risk to do that? What are you willing to do to, to ease your psychic angst? How are you willing to medicate or alleviate that pain? What are you willing to do for your dream vacation, dream house, dream car? What are you willing to do to move into the right neighborhood, whatever that is? What are you willing to do to be liked, to be loved, to achieve things, to be recognized? What are you willing to do? Cheryl and I, right out of college, we wanted to drive cross country, spend some time, a few months hanging out. We didn't have much uh, by way of resources, money, and so, but we did have a Saturn. Some of you may not even know what a Saturn is, not the planet, the car. They stopped making them for a good reason. But uh, we loved our Saturn, and it was a great car, uh, and it's a tiny car. 
uh, very, very small. I think it was like a one-cylinder engine or something. I think mopeds might have had more CCs than, these, than this car did. Well, anyway, we wanted to travel cross-country, so we had the car, but we really wanted to do camping because we, we couldn't afford hotels and motels, not even the Motel 6s at the time. So we, uh, we bought a tent trailer for like 500 bucks. And uh, those are the little portable things you pull. And so we went and put a hitch on the back of our, our Saturn. The guy at the hitch company did not know if he could even put a hitch on a Saturn. Because, like, I don't even know, like, there's plastic. They were made mostly of plastic. Like, we had to find actual metal on this car in order to put this hitch on it. And so we went for it. We wanted to do it. We wanted to see the country. We wanted to travel. Sometime around Death Valley, we were driving through. It was 120-something degrees. Uh, that We blew a head gasket and the engine and the whole thing, like you would imagine. It wasn't one of our best ideas, towing a tent trailer across the country. But we had a great time. What were we willing to do? Apparently, we were willing to sacrifice the engine on the Saturn to do it. There was a time not too long ago, maybe 15 years or so ago, where Cheryl and I, we wanted to see a church started in the middle of Nassau County. We were excited about this. We got really uh, felt like God was, was wanting us to do this thing. And so we cashed out our savings and investments and moved to Carl Place without much of a plan other than if we could find a few people that wanted to do this with us, it'd be awesome. And so we did that. By the way, cashing out makes it sound like a more impressive thing than it really was uh, because there wasn't much there uh, anyway. And so, um, but yeah, that was, that. what are you willing to do for the thing that you want to do? Jesus, of course, he asked a similar question. He raised similar challenges. What were you willing to do to follow him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? What are you willing to do? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice? What behaviors will you adapt or adopt or abandon in order to follow him? And of course, he offered us a reward if we do. And it wasn't a Klondike bar. He talks about joy unspeakable. He talks about eternal pleasures at his right hand, a home in heaven with him, an extended family of believers, not just here, but mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters that, that span time that we will one day spend all of time with, friendship with the king of the universe, access to the throne room of heaven, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life. He offers us this promises us these things. So here we come through, we've been working on this whole series through Corinthians. So, and we're still in our series in 1 Corinthians and we are kind of just working our way right through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we find ourselves in chapter nine. And this is where Paul is gonna challenge us to consider what it is that we would be willing to do to follow Jesus and help others follow Jesus as well. And he does that by giving us an extended personal Example. Now, this is kind of like part two from last week. So, if you haven't, uh, if you want to go online later and watch part one uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it might help frame some of these things. But um, by way of review, we saw last week that Christians were to develop a posture of the heart that leads us to yield our rights so that other Christians 
might grow into full maturity in Jesus. So, so this idea of using our freedoms, of leveraging our privilege and our strength to overcome disunity and to love each other as followers of Jesus. And that was kind of his big point that he was making last, uh, last week that we were studying this. He said that knowledge and freedom, though they are good things, they actually can get in the way of the mission of God if they are not undergirded if they do not rest upon the foundation stone of love. And that was one of the key ideas, that they aren't the, the priority. It isn't about rights. It isn't about freedom. It's about love first and foremost, and then the rest of it will work itself out. And we also saw that the divisions that separate the church and always will separate the church on this side of eternity, that these are actually a gift from God because they... They give us the ground by which we get to practice yielding. And so this, I think, is a, is a key idea here because we get so frustrated and we get so overwhelmed by these kinds of things. And yet, what we're really talking about is an opportunity to become the kinds of Christ followers that he is making us to be. Right? So like if you pray for patience, what is God going to do? Right? He's going to bring idiots into your life. Right? I mean, okay, maybe they're idiots to you. They're not real idiots because, you know, they're all God's children and that and that. But, but you, you know what I'm talking about. They're the kinds of people that don't understand what a checkout line, how to use the self-checkout, and, and so they're really slow. It's the, it's the call center, right? So you, now, you, now you make a call to a call center and you need some help, and they're in the Midwest. How are you doing, Mr. Kelly? I'm on the phone with tech support. How do you think I'm doing? Hey, how's the weather out there? It's been cold over here. I, I don't care. I don't care about the weather there. I don't care about the weather here. I care about getting to someone that can help me with my problem. And so here I am, you know, you want to become a more patient person and God fills your life with people that will help you become a patient person. And that's a good thing. I tell myself that every morning in every phone call. That is a good thing. And we have to convince ourselves of this and because, of course, when we do that. So what is it when we're talking about this, this, this issue in, in 1 Corinthians 8 of unity and of yielding ourselves and every opportunity we get to practice yielding is a good thing. It's a gift from God to make us into the men and the women that he wants us to be the, to reach our full redemptive potential here on earth. And so all of this is kind of background to what Paul's about to do, which is to give us an extended personal ex example of how even the Apostle Paul has to continue along kind of this line and uh, struggle. And so 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 9. We are starting in verse 1. He says, am I not free? And when he says this, he really does mean that. He is a Roman citizen. He is a rabbi from the Jewish people. He is an apostle. He has all of the rights and privileges that come with all of those levels of status in all of these different spheres of the ancient world. And he is free. They liked the fact that they were freed men and women. They were part of this uh, piece of the Roman Empire that was really rebuilding ancient Corinth into Roman Corinth. And they, one of their, their, uh, their uh, claim to fame was that they were freed men. And so, they, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus? So he says, yeah, I'm free. I'm just like you. I have all of those same rights and privileges, but I'm also 
I'm also an apostle and I have seen Jesus. So I've come to talk to you guys about Jesus, but I myself have actually seen Jesus. Jesus appeared to me. And so you start to see his rights and his status going up. And are you not the result of my work in the Lord, even though I may not be an apostle to others? Surely I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. So others have said, I don't know if Paul's really an apostle. Like he didn't really, he, Peter and Paul, they weren't like a thing. And to lay it, like, so like, I don't know. But he's like, listen, you want to know my apostleship? You are the proof of my apostleship. I came to you in Corinth. You are, in fact, you actually owe your salvation to me. I used my freedom in what Jesus sent me to do so that you might receive eternal life. And he goes on, he says, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Cephas is Peter there. Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living. And so taken out of context, this is a pretty fascinating text. So Paul here is reminding them of how church leaders in that day and through since that day have lived. They have earned their living, their food and their drink from the churches that they were ministering to. They're the leaders. They travel. And not only do they travel, but they're allowed to travel with their spouses. And so their families get supported by the churches that they are doing work among. Even he says, the Lord's brothers, which is sort of cool because, you know, this is kind of the thing. I was raised Catholic, and so we were kind of taught that Mary was forever a virgin. And so it wasn't just that she was a virgin uh, when, she, when Jesus was born, that she remained a virgin. But it seems likely from the scriptures, because uh, they regularly talk about his brothers and his sisters, that after Jesus was, in fact, born of Virgin Mary, she was no longer a virgin because it looks like he had some brothers and sisters. And there's one of these is James who wrote the book that we get later. And of course, he mentioned Cephas, Cephas being Peter, who is the most famous of all of the apostles, really one of the leaders of the apostolic tribe. And he says, look, that's how this works. All of them get to take their families along. They get to be supported by the church, and it is really now me and Barnabas who are not doing that. So they decided not to get paid from, from the Corinthians for the work they were doing among the Corinthians. And we'll get back to that in a minute, but he's not done developing this idea of his rights. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one. Obviously, the government sends them. The government pays their wages. That's what you would expect. Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat from its grapes? No one. You plant a vineyard, you take the grapes, you make your jam and your marmalade. I don't actually know how you make marmalade out of grapes. But you, you, you make your, your food and then you press your grapes for your wine and you take all of those first fruits from your vineyard and anything extra you get to sell in the marketplace so that people without vineyards can benefit. Who tends a flock and doesn't drink the milk? And so, of course, the milk and the cheese you make from the milk, this is all that you would expect from the people who were tending to the work with the bulk of their time, energy, and uh, resources. And then he says, this is not just about human authority. These are kind of the examples in how the world works. Doesn't the law say the same thing? And so now he ramps it up even further. The law of Moses says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. 
And he goes, it's not about ox that he's writing this. Yes, God cares about the ox. He always cares about the animals. You'll see that throughout the scriptures where God cares about the animals himself and he expects us to care about the animals. And so Paul's not here saying he doesn't really care about the ox. He clearly does. But this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If, if he cares about the ox, then obviously he cares about all of us. And so if this applies, then this applies from the lesser to the greater as well. Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. So the worker is worth his wages. And so here, Paul, he takes this Old Testament passage, he takes all of the examples from regular life and he weaves them all together and he says, this is how it ought to be. Now he makes it perfectly clear. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? Which, of course, the answer is no. Of course it's not. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? And, of course, now the Corinthians would be saying, well, yeah, of course he, he should. He deserves it more than others. He deserves it more than anyone else that we're actually... He, he was the first to bring us the gospel. So, yes, he and Barnabas absolutely, totally deserve it. But we didn't use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So now the overall gist of Paul's argument is pretty plain. Paul is fully entitled. He has the right. It is the Corinthians' responsibility to give him financial support and even more so because they owe their very salvation to him. God commanded it. That's the natural order of things. That's the way the secular world works. And of course, on every front, this is how the Christian church functions. How much more so should it function this way for Paul. This is, in fact, the normal order of things. So the, the Jewish people had a great system. Everywhere the Jewish people traveled throughout the world, the diaspora, they were dispersed from Israel across the whole of the, the, the planet. And every time 10 Jewish families would gather in a city, they could start a synagogue, which is pretty cool. The, the way they can do that is every family gave 10% or a tithe of their income to the work of the rabbi. So one of the 10 could become the rabbi and they could start a synagogue in every city with as few as 10 families. This same principle applied uh, throughout this period in history and actually it can still apply even today. It's a brilliant system. It works great. It is how God intended it. That is to give us all the perspective on what is owed him, what is due him. But Paul refuses. And this is the key. By the way, that's the part that the preachers, where they stop. Um, that, that's the part they're like, that's, that's the word right there. Uh, but you got to go to the, you got to keep going. Because uh, it is true, but Paul, but I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast. Since I am compelled to preach, woe to me if I do not 
preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. And that's kind of this key idea that, that we do not, that he does not make full use of his rights. And how did he do that? Well, for Paul, he was a tent maker. We use that term to describe what people do today, but he was actually a tent maker. He worked in fabric and he made tents and that was his skill, his trade. And many of the Jewish rabbis would have had a trade like this. And so when he traveled around, he'd go to a place like Corinth, they would set up for their annual, every biannual games, like kind of like our Olympics. People would travel in and they would need tents and they would set up these like caravans and like carnival areas and stuff like that. And, and he had plenty of business. And so he would make tents. And so he could support himself by the making of tents. Today, we would call that a bivocational ministry. And so there are plenty of folks who are bivocational. They work in the secular work and that helps fund and pay for their spiritual or ministerial work. But um, Paul is saying that he was refusing to take any money from the Corinthians. So scholars have wondered why this is because it isn't actually the natural order of things. This was exceptional even by the claim that Paul is making. And most seem to think that it has something to do with the way that the Gentiles in particular, and Corinth maybe particularly, would have viewed that relationship. And so the Jewish people would have had no, in fact, they would have been offended if in fact they couldn't find a spiritual leader to focus their time, energy on study and on teaching. They would have been offended if that were the case. And, and, and for the rest of the apostles, their primary ministry started with the Jewish people. But Paul was in an environment where there were very wealthy people, the benefactors, and they would pay for their traveling philosophers or teachers to come about. And if they liked what they were hearing from these people, they would meet with them privately and they would hold private parties and they would pay them even more. And they were really creating kind of an employer-employee relationship with an expectation that I would have more access to you, that you would do special teachings and favors for me, because in fact, I'm paying your bills. And I think Paul wanted to avoid any of that. I think he knew there were a ton of poor people that needed access to the gospel that the wealthy would not have always been willing to underwrite. I think he would have been saying things about wealth and about the trade guilds and about business with people who are in the, the secular, the pagan environments that they would not have liked and they would have been able to leverage money against him. And I think he set a standard which put him in his mind and Barnabas in his mind above reproach in this particular mission field. And so he would receive support and money from other churches from outside the area and through his tent making and the work of Barnabas, they were able to continue ministering to the Corinthians without any of uh, those troubling side effects of having uh, mostly the wealthy people support the ministry. So the point is, whatever the reasons, is that Paul didn't take this money, but he deserved it. He had the rights to it. He had the freedoms. The Corinthians owed it to him, and Paul claimed none of these rights, none of these freedoms, and he used instead his freedom and his resources to reach people that were far from God and to grow people up into full maturity. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave 
to everyone, a slave to everyone. And so he turns around and he yields his freedom and his power, his autonomy even, so that he might be a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. This is a key idea because this winning isn't like a competition word. It's not like two people in a race and you won. This is more like an investment word. And so the way that this word was used would be like if you took, you know, your shillings, whatever, you're, and you invested them in this field and you helped this farmer buy the oxen that he needed and so you were expecting a return and the field did great. And because of your investment, you got a whole lot of money back. And so this is an investment kind of an idea. You take this kind of money, it's, a, it's that much, you put it over here and out of it you see this great return on your investment. And that's what he's saying about, I'm getting a return on investment as much as possible. Among the Jews, I'm getting an incredible return on my investment. To, and those who, are, who live under the law, those who don't live under the law, I'm getting an incredible investment return. He goes on, he says, to those not having, I became like one not having it, although I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those having, not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. Over and over and over, he's saying, it doesn't matter where I am and to what group of people I am working with. I am going to do everything I can and I am going to become everything I need to become in order to have a return on investment among them. Whatever it means, whoever it is, cross-culturally, socioeconomically, I am going to do whatever it takes to reach people who are far from God. And when he talks about a return on investment, he defines it for us. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save. I might save some. And he does this all for the sake of the gospel because in the end, he too is gonna share the Klondike bar or the blessing. He makes himself a slave. Christian freedom is not freedom to do whatever you like. It is freedom from everything that keeps you from being who God made you to be. That's Christian freedom. Freedom for us means freedom for something. It's freedom for the lost who need the kingdom of God. And so Paul, he did whatever he needed to do. He taught the truth in culturally relevant ways. He engaged with his culture. He sacrificed greatly so that some would be saved, so that he would get a return on his investment. You know, we make so many claims in this life. Everything, it's about me, it's about mine. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, you guys got to go read this. He talks about how, how difficult it is and how tempting it is to think of everything in this world as mine. And in the Screwtape Letters, what he largely does is, is the, the demons who are writing the letters, supposedly, they talk about how we try to keep this, this mythology that humans can own anything. They, the demons want us to think in terms of mine, 
Because in fact, nothing is ours. Everything in the end will belong to the creator. The demons, of course, what they're going after is you. What the enemy wants are the souls. That's what he is going to cash in on. That's where his investment is leading him. And we think in terms of all of our stuff, all of our resources, and it's all me, it's all mine, it's even my God, as if somehow we possess him. And the demons, according to the screw tape letters, they wants us to keep that mythology ever before us so that we can believe these lies that we have some sort of ownership in this world. When in the end, when all of this shakes out, we will see who owns what. As Christians, we have more wealth and privilege and freedom right now than any Christians that the world has ever known. Right now. Our day, our generation. We are unique in this way among all Christians everywhere for 2,000 years. When we find ourselves... We want to create a whole long list like Paul did. We're going to say, this is what we do. We work real hard. We went to school. We studied hard. We got good grades. We did that. We did this. We're smart. We work on it. We invest all of this stuff. And look, all of this is now mine. I've accomplished so much. I deserve these things. I think Paul would say, even if that were true, even if you had the right to all of those things, is that how you want to claim them? You want a really great exercise. This week, take an hour, take your calendar out, take your task list out, take your bank statement and your credit card statement and, and, and study it prayerfully for an hour and see what it is we spend our time and our energy and our money on. What's your time, talent, and treasure going toward I've done this exercise, it's, it's somewhat disillusioning. When you realize how readily we think everything that we have ought to be spent on us. All of our time ought to be guarded, protected from others who could use it and benefit from it. How all of our resources are there to make our lives a little more comfortable or a little more secure this money should go into an investment so that it's secure, so that I'm secure, so that my kids are secure, so I can leave them this and that and the other thing, which is all going to seem so fruitless in the end of time. Will we be proud of the investments that we have made? I just can imagine a future for Long Island where Christians, where we step up and we sacrifice greatly for lost people where we, with Paul, say, I will become all things to all people and I will give up my rights, I will give up my privileges, I will give up my resources so that people who are far from God might be saved. You can imagine what it would be like if the whole of the Christian community here on Long Island decided that that's what we were going to do, that that's how we were going to live, how we were going to reorder our lives, our calendars, our spending, the use of our talent, 
If we were to reorganize our lives in such a way, you know, uh, recently somebody added a beacon to their will. And so in the future, one day, um, we will uh, actually be part of their inheritance, the house and things like that. And I thought, you know, what foresight. This is a person who is saying, and again, I'm going to have to qualify like Paul. I'm not saying, I'm not claiming, making any claims like this for anyone else. That's between you and your God. What I'm saying is that this person is saying to themselves, how is it that I can impact generations to come? Because they're not going to benefit from that. They're not going to see that. Our children's children will benefit from that. We will reach lost people who are not yet born because of that decision. We have a, another friend of the church who's working on a big, a big business deal, and, and they say that um, if this thing goes through, that they've earmarked uh, an investment in the ministry here at Beacon. It's the kind of investment that means we will have resources to help start churches around the island. Do you imagine what it would be like for followers of Jesus to live in this kind of a way? For the generation that is coming up, right? I, I think of Trevor. When Trevor first came to Beacon, he was an intern. He was a kid. He was super young, and he had all of this incredible raw talent. And, and now I see him in the ministry, dedicating the whole of his life toward helping people grow up in faith and reach lost people. And I think of, you know, our young team. We have, you know, the Crisbells, and we have the Logans, and we have this worship team we're watching. I'm like, these are the, this is the generation. These are going to be the people who will be investing their lives. Some of you will be investing the remainder of your lives. And, and some of the young people here who have no idea what you're going to be doing, you're going to be investing your lives to reach lost people right here in New York. And we are going to be a part of that generation that equips and resources you to do that. Because we will become all things to all people so that by all possible means, we might save some. Could you imagine that day with me? If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.